This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And soon we're going to be joined here in the party room by Lenore Taylor, editor of Guardian Australia, to talk about, well, amongst other things, the net zero emissions target stalemate in the federal coalition. Let's face it, PK, there's few people in the country who know more about Australia's climate policy and the so-called climate wars than Lenore Taylor. Um, and as we record this, the Nats are still refusing to commit to the plan that's been brought to them, a plan we the people haven't even seen yet, of course, but that's mm. that's an, another issue. We'll get back to that. Um, so all of that ahead. But, PK, I thought I would just sort of take a moment to talk about me um, yes. and share a bit of news of my own about me because this morning I announced on RM Breakfast that after 17 years in that job, I'm going to step aside. Um, I won't be presenting breakfast every morning come December. It's been a it's been an absolutely fabulous and wild ride, but PK, the truth is I need more sleep. <laughs> Fran, um, I promised myself as I was driving in to do the podcast that I wouldn't cry about this, <laughs> but I'm very sad that you're leaving RM Breakfast. And I know our listeners right now to this podcast and, and to your program feel very much the same because the thing about you is not only are you an excellent political journalist and interviewer, but you have so much warmth and uh, complexity to who you are. And you are actually, and people say it, it's a cliche, but it's true, you're in our households in a way that is kind of intense. And I've been now at RN for seven years, right? You know, <laughs> I'm clocking up the years too. But actually, before I was at RN, you were already part of my household. So you've been basically in my house getting my kids ready for school or <laughs> childcare or, you know, doing their nappy change since their birth. Luca's 12. Our entire lives have had your voice in it. That is intense. And now uh, to actually leave you to leave that space, I reckon, is a really big deal, not just for you, and I know it's about you, but actually for <laughs> lots of us. And yes, you know, of course, the world moves on. We all know that. But actually, a radio presenter is an incredibly intimate relationship. We have our own relationship now because we're podcast buddies and actually friends. Mm. But ultimately, to me, you are the best broadcaster and listening to you in the mornings has actually started my day in a way that I am going to miss profoundly. And so I said I wouldn't cry. I feel very emotional about it. I've been overwhelmed. My kids had to check on me this morning. Mum, are you okay? Oh, that's so We're sweet. still going to see Fran, Mum. It's okay. And I'm like, I know, but it's different because she won't be on our radio next year. Mm. And I say next year because you will be till the end of this year. Yeah, and so I will be. 
But you know what? You can career. tell the kids that when they see me now, I won't be so tired and I'll have more time to talk to them. <laughs> so I'll be more human. But look, Pico, that is very, very, very sweet of it. I'm emotional today, actually. It's been a bit overwhelming. But the ones, and I've had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of texts and it's been lovely and messages. And But the ones that I love the most are the ones where some, someone said, you know, I, I've been listening to you for years and, and uh, in fact, me and my girlfriends, you know, we used to joke that you were our flatmate. You were one of our flatmates. <laughs> and another one says, we call you Auntie Fran in our household. Yeah. But the best thing that happened to me, or the worst thing, I'm not sure, was nothing to do with making this announcement. But one day I ran in, some people came up to me and said, oh, hi, Fran, you know, we love you. And that was lovely. And they said, but our four-year-old hates you. And I said, what? And and I got really kind of upset. And they said, yeah, because in the morning they come down, they want to talk to us and we we're going, shh, we're listening to Fran, and so they actually say, "I hate Fran," and um, <laughs> but anyway, it's been you know, like I said, we won't let enough about me, all right? But no, uh, it, no, it's not been enough. a Wait. real, a People real pleasure to, to be in people's homes in the morning, and the feedback and and warmth I get, you know through social media and, and in the mornings on the text line is just really, you know, buoyed me up and really helped because 17 years is a long time. Let's face it. It's, it's, it's an enormous time. effort and only you could do that, right? It takes an incredible stamina and personality to be able to do that and, and take the scrutiny that comes with it. Let's not forget that. It's a big job with a lot of scrutiny and you have done it with integrity always and you are a pleasure to listen to. You're a robust interviewer and I am proud to be your podcast partner. And now I can introduce the topic that you will continue to be my podcast partner and people can still hear you here and you will be with them for the election campaign campaign with me and that is very exciting and and that as kind of hopefully for our listeners right now that's exciting because yeah okay next year they won't be switching on the radio at 6am to hear you but they will hear you weekly on this podcast oh yeah the magic continues pk on the party room don't leave us everybody stick with us we'll be there and can i say about the four-year-old my 10-year-old stella gets upset if i turn the radio down <laughs> she says put fran back up anyway let's talk about what politics yes let's talk about politics enough about me we We've got some great news on the COVID front. Australia has officially reached its goal of 70% double-dose vaccination targets this week. Congratulations, everybody. That is really a significant and fabulous achievement. But, PK, we are a nation of states and territories, and it's not quite a universal story on the vaccination story. States and territories that are all at different points in the vaccination rollout. They're all coming up with different roadmaps. There's some confusion about... Um, what will things actually look like come Christmas, for instance, which I, is, I think, where you know people's minds are starting to turn now. It's not exactly clear yet where we'll be able to go by Christmas, who can go where and what we can do when we get to these places. So, you know, for instance, in New South Wales, where I am, it's pretty much open slather for all the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. But that is certainly not the same in all the other places in Australia, is it? No, there's, there's a lot of um, changing parts. Now, a significant milestone in the country, I think, is changing with the double-dose um, figure of 70%. Uh, for We know, for instance, in Queensland, that's had a very hard policy that they are essentially dismantling the hard border. Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk has announced the state will open its borders when it reaches that 70% double-dose vaccination, which is expected to be on November the 19th. So it might take a while to get there, and you might have to arrive in Queensland by plane or whatever, but it's still significant it's a stark contrast to WA, though, where the Premier Mark McGowan has ruled out opening the border in time for Christmas, especially for Victoria and New South Wales. And as we go um, and record this 
podcast, Victoria is on its last day of this hard lockdown. A lot of emotions, can I say, in, in, in Melbourne, particularly in relation to this, because we've been locked down for so much of the time of the last two years. Yes, some positivity, but a lot of a lot of worry because we've got these incredibly stubbornly high figures, over 2,000 mm. again today that we record this podcast. So, yes, the, there is an uneven national story. We are opening up at different paces across the country. But, you know, we've got some hot spots like Victoria that are going to keep providing challenges, I yeah, think, for just, our system. Just on that, the worry front, you know, I was talking to the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, he's a Victorian. He's been calling, as have some of the epidemiologists and others now, for the Premier of Victoria, Dan Andrews, to basically get on the same page as New South Wales in terms of the, the speed of opening up, because although Victoria is opening up tonight at midnight, which is fantastic and hooray, and, that, you know, I'm so thrilled for all of you, but, um, but it's not going to be quite the same degree of opening up. And for instance, Dan Andrews, one significant difference is in New South Wales, come December 1, I think the date is, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated will be equally unlocked. So even if you're unvaccinated, you'll have access to all the freedoms. That won't be the same. The Premier of Victoria is quite clear about that. Dan Andrews says, no way are you getting that incentive and it'll be some months before you do. Um, and, and I wonder how Victorians are feeling about that, whether they're backing a more cautious approach given the sort of high numbers and, and the history in Victoria or if they're just champing at the bit to get on with it and opening up the economy? It's both. And that's why as we record this, I mean, I've talked to, honestly, Fran, I've talked to three different people, different walks of life who've had a bit of a sob on me. Now, that's pretty weird, right? And I've been one of those people. Why would we be crying when we should be happy, apparently? <laughs> well, because it's a vexed story. Uh, yes, we need our freedoms. Yes, we are desperate to get out of this situation. We are fatigued. Our children have suffered so much. They want to go back to school. But I'll give you an example, a really personal one. Our school has been shut down already this week on the reopening week because there was a COVID case. That's going to be our reality. Yeah. Uh, up again, down again, up again, down again. The kids are nervous. My youngest child isn't vaccinated and she's going back to school. She's so nervous about going back to school. All she's heard about for the last two years is about coronavirus and how deadly it is. She's scared about going back to school, but she's equally desperate to go back to school. So it's... What a what a conflicting feeling, right? What yeah. a weird feeling to be knowing you need to do this, but equally, I, I've been really careful about booking venues because I know I love doing my job. I want to be part of the world. I don't want to be forced into home quarantine for a week. But now, you see, that's different from every state as well, because you know the treatment of an infection. I mean, the, the way New South Wales schools will respond to an infection is going to be different to the way they do in Victoria, and there'll be fewer lockdowns, as far as I can interpret the rules anyway, in Sydney than there there may be, or fewer quarantines and fewer first contact quarantines and that sort of protocol in Sydney than there will be in Melbourne. So. I, I'm, I just think it would be helpful if we could get some kind of national picture. I know we had a national roadmap. It's fallen down before it's even started. Um, but it is hard to know what's the right way through here. Yeah, it is. But yes, the roadmap's fallen over slightly. But equally, it has held... Look at Queensland this week, which I think was a significant announcement from them, right? Yeah. Uh, that is because of the national roadmap, some of the, the triggers there. So 
I do think it's forced the hand of some states, Queensland being the most obvious, to try and provide the details of how it will, will try and meet the criteria of the roadmap. So it's not all bleak. I do, th- I see hope. Look at New South Wales. It is really a success story at this stage and hats off to the people who did the hard work. I, I didn't want to be in the category of people who were the naysayers saying, oh, you're not locking down hard enough. People did hard work in New South Wales. In Victoria, it's it's a different story. We haven't had as much luck, I think, in some ways as well, but I think the fatigue has set in and people just, we just couldn't do it anymore, Fred. It was just such hard work for us after such a long time. Anyway, that's the situation we're in. Uh, but the big elephant in the room this week, which we sort of, um, you know, need to get into with our next guest, our, our big guest for today is climate change. I cannot believe we're still talking about it. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. Lenore Taylor is the editor of Guardian Australia and our guest. Welcome to the party room. Thanks, PK. Lenore Taylor is also one of the people in this country who knows more about climate policy, the so-called climate wars than anyone else you could imagine. So it's great to have you with us today, Lenore. Thanks, Fran. You know, um, I know I'm going to talk about climate, but I have to say first up that I know you're going on to bigger and possibly less exhausting things, Fran, but we're going to miss you so much in the mornings. You're my 6am alarm call. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm you're going to sleep in maybe. You, but I'm sad <laughs> for us. Yeah, well, can I just say your alarm clock's broken and it looks like we're both going to be getting sleep ins. But thank you, Lenore. Thank you. Um, Hey, Lenore, the biggest story this week, obviously, has been the ongoing kind of shenanigans within the coalition. Again, when it comes to net zero, there's a real power play being played out before our very eyes. It seems that we're at a bit of a stalemate, but the Prime Minister finally stepped up this week. Here he is. The global economy is changing as the world responds to climate change. Members on my left, members for Isaacs. And those changes, Mr Speaker, will have an impact on the Australian economy. They do present risks and threats to rural and regional areas, and only the coalition can be trusted to ensure that we can deal with those threats, that we can support rural and regional Australia, Mr Speaker. And within all of that, the Prime Minister also made the point that, well, basically made it clear Australia will commit to net zero emissions by 2050. It will be a Cabinet decision, but somehow or other, the Nats are still kind of in play here. Now, Lenore, even if the Prime Minister does get this deal with the Nats, which we think he will, is that enough of a story to take to Glasgow? I mean, a strong 2030 target, according to Greens leader Adam Band, is the price of admission to Glasgow. The Prime Minister has been absolutely clear about this. Australia is not formally revising its its Paris commitments of 26 to 80% increase in emissions. He says, as he's said many times over the years, we're going to meet and beat those targets and presumably he's going to give us a figure that we are projected to do better than that. But he will not go with a formal agreement. Why is that? Because that will be a lightning rod for some criticism. Yeah, well, not only a lightning rod for some criticism, but a precursor to his policy actually making sense. I mean, if you added up all the 2030 targets put forward at that last meeting in Paris, if even if they were all kept, which obviously they haven't been, that would mean 
we would see global heating of between 2.7 and 3.5 degrees. The point of this exercise, besides, you know, Australian political machinations, is to keep global heating under 2 degrees. That means that all countries had to ratchet up their targets, do more before 2030. 2050 is too late. You can't have a gas-led recovery, open up fracking in the Beedaloo Basin, continue to open up new coal mines as if nothing's going to happen and then suddenly do a sort of abrupt U-turn in like 2045 and think you're going to get there. It doesn't compute. So, Except except that's what the Prime Minister has made it clear. He says his plan will show. He, his view is, or his position, is not only does it compute, it makes perfect sense when he said, and as he has now very clearly, it's not going to be a linear projection to 2050. That's that's his very um, explanation for why they're not going to raise their 2050 target, 2030 target, because clearly in their plan, when we get to see it eventually, it's going to show you know technology ratcheting up those those emissions cuts in the in the later years, perhaps in that 2040 decade. So that's what they're going to say, but I think we need to scrutinise that very, very carefully because let's say one of those technologies is carbon capture and storage. If you look at it, maybe carbon capture and storage might be economical on some industrial processes, might be useful in some ways, but as a means of uh, storing and allowing the continued generation of electricity uh, by coal through coal-fired power, it, it doesn't compute. It doesn't work. It certainly doesn't work in an affordable way. And so I think putting our hope on technology that either isn't here yet or may not work at a price we can afford, when we have renewable technology right now that does work and is more affordable, kind of puts a lie to this whole policy. I mean, we need to look at it and assess it when it comes out. But if that's what it's saying, then it's really just a smokescreen to sort of pretend like we're going to do something way down the track, kick the can further down the road, kind of pretend to people who are concerned about this, which is the majority of the population, that we're doing something while still continuing pretty much business as usual. And I don't think that that's really going to wash. No, uh, it's it's uh, not going to wash. I, I think you're right. And well, you know, it's not going to wash with the world. Whether it washes with the electorates they're concerned about, that's the thing, isn't it? Sorry, yeah, but it's speaking. no, no, no. But it's actually not going to. Yeah, maybe in some of the electorates, but across the country, it's not going to wash yeah. either. If you know, look at look at look at the polling. Look at how people are, are feeling. Like I think the frustration here is really real, isn't it, Lenore? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I think, I mean, obviously Scott Morrison's political plan being telegraphed through, you know, some of the pundits and, you know, pretty obvious is that a net zero commitment will be enough to shut up the greenies in the inner city. And then if Labor promises to actually do something in the the nearer term, do more by 2030, which has to happen, then he can dust off all those old lines about how it will cost jobs in the coal mining seats, kind of reprise the last couple of elections and, you know, reap the political benefits while not... Uh, while not really having the consequences on a global stage. I think, yeah, so he wants to have his cake and eat it too, but I think we've gone past that. I hope we've gone past that. I think business and farmers and voters are now too aware to allow that to continue to be, you know, to, to, to allow this to continue to be effectively like a political parlour game as if it has no consequence. Um, it might be analysed that way sometimes. But, you know, the Liberal states and the BCA have now supported 2030 targets 
uh, either at or more than what Bill Shorten took to the last election, which we were told were going to destroy the economy. Rio that Tinto, is, Rio Tinto yeah, exactly. is promising that, more than Labor was promising exactly. at the last election. Matt Keane secured a deal with the New South Wales Nationals for 50% emissions cuts in 2030 and net zero in 2050. So surely it's not too hard to figure out for everybody and it's not too hard to make the case that you can't turn around economy to net zero in the last couple of years of a 30-year time frame, that that's not a credible concept. I suppose the challenge is, though, to to be able to spell out to people in a way they can grasp, you know, really grab, is what those jobs might be. If their jobs are going as we get to net zero, some of those coal industry jobs as, you know, South Korea and Japan head to net zero by 2050, they're going to stop buying as much of our coal, stop using as much of our coal, you know, what it's replaced with. And we can talk about that in headlines. And Anthony Albanese made that, I think, his first speech as, as opposition leader. And, 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 you know, Scott Morrison has adopted some of that language now. But it is, you know, what will the jobs be that the Nats are keep coming back to? I thought it was instructive that Barnaby Joyce made the point this week. I think he mm. said that only 12% of his electorate are farmers, is, as though, you know, that's a reason why he doesn't have to sort of follow the NFF's yeah, position. Yeah, like they've changed. Like yeah. everything's changed. Yeah, yeah but I, it, it is that thing of people are frightened about their jobs, of course, and that's the field to play on now, really, yeah, how, how you get that out. Yeah. Justifiably so, but I think that case is becoming easier to make as these big renewable energy hubs are being built, are being announced as tangible things in regional centres in Queensland, in New South Wales, in Victoria, so that for people who are saying there are different jobs, there are jobs to go to in this transition, there's something concrete to point to. Now, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has taken a swing at Scott Morrison over his handling of of the nationals, the way he's kind of managed them over net zero. Here he is. I've grappled with the nationals, as as he has, and and we've we've grappled with them together. It's, look, it's not easy, but I mean, just saying Scott is long on tactics, short on strategy. You know, is like saying the Pope's a Catholic. I mean, that's who he is. He's the he's the state director, who's prime minister, and he's constantly focused on the short term political tactics of the moment. Oh. Now, yeah, it's it's quite quite a line. Now the prime minister is really letting this play out to the last possible minute. What do you make of Malcolm Turnbull's analysis there? Look, I mean, it's forcefully put, but I think in essence it's right. Um, you know, politicians sadly always act in their own political self-interest and I think uh, Scott Morrison has a very narrow majority so I assume he is judging that if he allows the Nationals to maximise the noise that they make in their constituencies, maximise the deal they are seen to be be doing for the regions, he's more likely to keep most of them on side, avoid resignations or people moving to the crossbench which could um, mean that he loses his majority in the parliament or that he's in a much more precarious position so he can't afford that. I guess the downside of that strategy is the whole country can see that our climate policy is being held to hostage by a group of people, at least some of whom don't believe in climate change. Um, that's not a com- like a comfortable position for the Prime Minister, but I think he's judging it as the lesser of two evils and the best way to try to get the coalition through this without it splitting. Um, but it does, I mean, I think it does have conf- consequences politically and 
reputationally for Australia. Yes, but it's not a comfortable position, but it's like he's wearing that pain now. Glasgow is the focus. That'll be gone. He'll get that over with. He'll have net zero by 2050. Um, and I think the, the, the feeling is, you know, that will neutralise the issue. Where does this leave Labor? You know, because now I notice the Prime Minister is already starting to ramp up an attack on Labor that it's going to have this high midterm 2030 target. It's going to cost jobs. And how do you think Labor feels about mm. this, Lenore? Do you think they're worried there's one more scare campaign left still in climate policy? I think they probably are, but surely somebody somewhere has to base their policy in facts rather than political expediency. And we do need to have a 2030 target that involves starting to shift the economy. And, you know, I think one of the problems Labor has had in in dealing with the scare campaigns in past elections is that They've never really seemed to have the courage of their convictions. They've never really seemed to go out and forcefully argue the, the, the case. They've sort of tried to, you know, say it's sort of voce in the cities, you know, we really believe in this, but then really believe that coal can go on forever when they're in the Hunter Valley. And I think, you know, the time has come for someone to have the courage of their convictions. And I, I think that because of the weight of opinion now, accepting that we can't just keep mucking around with this, the rate of industry opinion and business opinion and public opinion, if someone really did have the courage of their convictions, they could probably make the case. Mm. It's if, if there's ever been a time, you know, if you look at News Corporation being on board, uh, it's kind of like the perfect time. It's just that it just just briefly on that, though, I mean, I think Labor felt very confident about that last election. We all were predicting that was going to be the climate election. Um, Scott Morrison had basically no clothes when it came to climate, but still managed to, you know, really, really damage Labor on That's the issue. That's true, Fran, but do you really think Bill Shorten made the case with conviction? Like wholeheartedly, I don't think he did. He had a he had a policy, but mm. he didn't really argue it. I don't think. Well, yeah, yeah he kind of multitasked, didn't he? Yeah, he did <laughs> multi message, narrow task in different places. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Now, now I want to change the topic quite dramatically to another big story this week, if we can. Leave mm. a pause. New topic: the coalition has blocked a bid to have Christian Porter investigated over his so-called blind trust set up to, you know, pay uh, what a million dollars in legal fees. The motion was defeated, fifty-two to forty-nine. What's important here is that's despite the Speaker, Tony Smith, ruling that there is a case for the former minister to be referred to the Privileges Committee. Now, Lenore, why did the government vote this down and how significant is it that they over, you know, over, uh, overrode Tony Smith? Uh, I guess they voted it down because they were worried that um, Christian Porter might leave and trigger a by-election. And it is significant that they overrode Tony Smith because... That's never happened before in the history of the parliament. Uh, And if this is allowed to stand, this uh, idea that you can set up a blind trust as a minister and take donations and not know where they came from, it sort of neuters the whole system of pecuniary interests. I don't really Mm. see the difference between a blind trust taking anonymous donations and a brown paper bag, really. And, you know, the idea that it is equivalent to a GoFundMe page. Well, I mean, I think we probably need 
to have a look at GoFundMe pages as well. Yeah, sure. But that's not really um, an, an equivalent situation. I mean, in Sarah Hanson Young's case, everybody who had donated over three hundred dollars was named. So sure, and there were only eight of them, and so there's yeah, no sense that we're yeah, talking huge named. numbers here. And named, <laughs> yes. yes. So by all means, have a look at that. But we can't just leave this blind trust issue sitting there. Because it makes a mockery of the whole system. And I think at the end of the day, you know, yes, it's in the government's short-term political interest, but it really erodes trust in public institutions if you think that people can just take donations uh, from anonymous donors. I mean, that's the whole point of having a pecuniary interest register. It, it goes back to the sort of political calculation the Prime Minister's making at all these points as you're just talking about the climate policy, doesn't it? I mean, at every point through the whole, you know, mm-hmm. the Christian Porter scenario and some of the other scenarios around, you know, sports rorts and others, um, the Prime Minister is sort of getting through it and getting past it and getting on to the next thing. They must have known this was a, a big move to defy the Speaker's reference in the way they have never been, been done before, as you said. Um, it was it's, it's a risky strategy because it will draw attention to integrity and politics, and that is always I hate I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it in this case a hot button issue in the electorate, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, it is a hot button issue, and again, it's a calculation probably of what is sort of le- the lesser of immediate political pain for the government. You know, a, a Christian Porter leaving the parliament in a by-election would be high political pain. This is political pain, but I guess the Prime Minister figures that he can wear it. Um, Their sort of, again, their sort of cover is that Peter Dutton has asked the Privileges Committee to clarify the rules about declarations of donations for legal funds. But that's not an inquiry into what Christian Porter did. It's not going to answer those questions. I guess it's possible if the Privileges Committee feels sufficiently punched in the nose that they might try to expand that remit or use that inquiry to answer the questions that they might have um, otherwise answered. So they could still make it uncomfortable for the government, I suppose, and obviously Labor will be trying to do that at every turn. Um, but, yeah, I agree with you, Fran. It is another, yeah. it is another short-term political calculation. Uh, another one. Okay. I suppose really obvious question, and, and I think I know the answer, but it's worth asking. Does it strengthen the case for a Federal Integrity Commission? You bet it does. You bet it does. <laughs> a real I one, just, though. I mean, when I, are we I, are we going to see the debate in the Parliament this year, do you think, about the, the sort of the structure and the format of the National Integrity Commission the government's put forward, which, you know, all the people engaged in this area of transparency and accountability um, are howling down as it just yeah. is weak. It's It doesn't have the teeth. It's, it's designed more to cover up than expose. So as I understand it, the government's going to come back with a sort of revised version because even they can see that what they've got at the moment doesn't fly. And I guess that will be scrutinised and it will sort of depend on the response to that to that revised, the, the revisions to the CIC as to whether um, there's a full-on debate this year or not. But, it, I mean, it's just desperately needed. And, I mean, I'm going to change the subject a bit here, here now mm-hmm. too. But, you know, people were saying when Gladys Berejiklian um, resigned, you know, see, that's why ICAC, ICAC is, you know, going too far. How mm. dare they? Well, I mean, the evidence that has come out this week would suggest that there is definitely questions worth asking there and, uh, to my mind, shows that ICAC is doing its job properly. It certainly shows that some of those who were working with her at the time now with all this information think, oh, there's questions to answer. <laughs> it's certainly exactly. the look exactly. on their faces, isn't it, if nothing else? Mm-hmm. 
the look on the faces beautifully put. Lenore, as usual, when we get your brain in front of us and we open it up and we mine it, we get good stuff. Thank you for coming into the party room. Mm, that sounds gory. Thank you. Thanks, <laughs> uh, You know what? That is the story of me. Thanks for that. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Lenore. It's been great. Thank you. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. This week's question comes from Judith, who writes, following Dominic Perrottet's recent announcement on overseas arrivals into Sydney, what has happened to the national plan for opening up? Is he still following it? Is anyone? And if not, what are the implications? I suppose we've kind of gone to that a little bit, Fran, but um, is he following it? Sort well, of he's sort of make, he's sort of setting it, I think. He's inventing it, Judith. You know, we've talked about it a little, how the different states are responding in different ways. We had a national plan. Turns out the fine print was very open to interpretation. And, of course, we had Dominic Perrottet coming out on his first day as um, as Premier of New South Wales and, and already kind of, you know, loosening the chains a lot more than Gladys Berejiklian had been proposing. And we think, from all accounts, overruling to some degree some of that health advice, some of the taking some of the caution out of it, um, but certainly going further than the others. And then he went further even than the Prime Minister wanted him to when he announced that New South Wales would be opening the borders come November 1 for overseas arrivals. The Prime Minister had to put, had to put a few sort of dampeners on that. So, no, we have a national plan, but not entirely. I think people are trying to work it out. And, and one reason why is some states, of course, like WA, which is now saying it will not be opening its borders to New South Wales come Christmas. They have no cases and they have a completely free and easy life. And they're looking at Victoria, for instance, with today, what is it, 2,200 cases, and going, no, 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 we, we, we cannot open and let that happen. Now, part of it is, I think, Attitudes may change within states and territories as their vaccination rates get higher. There is a patchy vaccination rollout. Queensland, for instance, some of its key regional areas where they're dying to open up, the tourism hotspots, have significantly lower vaccination rollouts than the national average, significantly lower vaccination rollouts than um, the capital, Brisbane even. Um, WA is behind in the vaccination rollout too. Now, they would say it's because they had to give up a lot of their supplies for the hotspots of Sydney and Melbourne maybe so, whatever it is, the fact is that these these states and territories, the populations at the moment are not as protected, so they're not going to open up yet. And then we've got the vexed question of, you know, more susceptible communities and remote Indigenous communities and some other communities where the vaccination rates, particularly in Queensland when it comes to Indigenous Australians, are still really languishing. So there's a lot more effort to go in. Um, and I think it's almost hard to predict when everyone might end up on the same page. But I think, in my gut, it is linked to vaccination rates. Oh, absolutely linked to vaccination rates. I think, uh, you know, that that point you made about Dom Perrottet kind of setting the agenda is a really good point. But if you think about when he started setting the agenda, it's because Gladys Berejiklian, his predecessor, who's in her own hot mess in ICAC at the moment, but had started setting that pathway, right? So 
ultimately, you know, this is a case of um, New South Wales having that big outbreak and therefore setting the, the country's ultimate agenda. Look at Queensland has changed. That's because of the outbreaks and then the, the push to vaccinate and everything's changed. So, um, you know, it's really shown some serious deficiencies and also strengths, depends how you want to see it, in our federation. But we are where we're at. Um, we're getting a clearer picture of what our life will look like. Yeah. And I think just one point I want to make, and I think in Victoria we really know this, We I use this word with my friends a lot, the next six months... We think it's all this utopia because we've finally made it to this, this, these, you know, thresholds, 70% double dose for the nation. But they're going to be a really bumpy ride the next six yeah. months. I mean, look, really at, look at the figures out of the UK just today, 100,000 cases in a day. Um, you know, we are not prepared, I don't think, psychologically for that kind of um, that kind of event, those kind of numbers. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't happen here. So far it's surprised on the upside in terms of hospital admissions. But you're right, a bumpy is one word for it. Scary might be another. I mean, I, I am one who actually sees strengths in, in the Federation through this and, and allowing different territories to taking different speed on things. But it definitely has some weak spots as well. But, um, yeah, the, the next six months, I think, it's nerves of steel time for all of us. Oh, for sure. All right, keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet us using the hashtag ThePartyRoom or email your questions to ThePartyRoom at abc.net.au where you can also send lots of messages saying that you love Fran. <laughs> um, I'm going to start emailing ThePartyRoom at abc.net.au sending Fran love letters. Yeah, I'm going to look for that. And remember, you can follow us, of course, on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.